Michaela. And I'm Eponine. And welcome to the Seafarers Podcast. A series for Meltony, La Picholeta Barca's magazine official podcast. Seafarers is LPB's new book club. It's aimed at fostering engaging conversations anchored by a book of poetry or prose. Are you tired of reading in solitude with no space afterwards to reckon with questions the text proposes? Are you in need of deadlines or the company of others to read or finish books? Or perhaps you're wanting to discuss the classics in an informal setting. Seafarers seeks to provide an open space for anyone to propose a book to read for the group and lead a discussion in a way they may not feel able to in other settings. The Seafarers podcast hopes listeners will feel welcome to not only seek out the books discussed in conversation, but feel more open to ask themselves and others questions inspired by the texts explored. For more information, please visit the website and contact us at the email listed there. Without further ado, here's the next episode. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Clarissa Spector's book, Agua Viva. Novelist, short story writer, and journalist, Clarissa Spector was born in Western Ukraine to a Jewish family who fled to Brazil to escape anti-Semitic violence. She went on to become a journalist, study law, and spent much of her adult life writing as she lived around the world with her husband who worked for the Foreign Service. She returned to Brazil in 1959 and lived in Rio until her death in 1977. Lispector's writing style is characterized by a blend of poetry and prose. Her texts tend to be concerned with a moment of rupture in an otherwise orderly life that causes a spiritual crisis within the protagonists, who tends to be a woman in search of her own autonomy. Lispector is one of the only women writers, a contested category in of itself, to have written texts in conversation with her own inner life as she aged. Her first book, Near to the Wild Heart, was published when she was only 23, and her last book, A Breath of Life, was published posthumously. She is most known for those two works, as well as The Passion According to G.H., a book she wrote in the second half of her life. In this episode, the book club discusses one of Lispector's more remote yet rigorous texts, Agua Viva. Structured as an unordered meditation on the nature of life and time, it has exercised a powerful influence on Brazil's greatest artists. One musician read it 111 times. Formally innovative, philosophically radical, and stylistically playful, this English language translation by Stefan Tobler from New Directions Publishing begins with the incomplete sentence. It's with such profound happiness. The book soon becomes consumed with the protagonist's attempts to reckon with how to find pleasure in the present moment, what Lispector calls the instant now. By positioning the painter protagonist as a thinly disguised version of her own work as a writer, Lispector calls into question the relationship between words and images, meaning and the evocation of it, and gives us permission to bear witness to her own search for how it feels to create art about what it means to live in the present moment. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to our first meeting. This is, of course, the first meeting, so... We have no rules coming into it, except that um, we want to talk about this book. And Epo and I will really quickly talk about sort of why we wanted to start the book club. And then we'll get into the discussion because we want to make sure that you all are excited to be here and, and are able to talk about what you want to talk about in this space. But super quickly, just to introduce myself for anyone who doesn't know me, um, I'm Michaela. I use she, her pronouns, and I am an editor um, at LPB and also starting a new column, which we'll talk about the new format in a sec. Yeah, for people who don't know me, I'm the editor of the thread. I see Daniel's here, which is always really nice because Daniel wrote a really good thread 
towards the beginning of the column. So what else do I do? Oh, yeah, and I sort of manage the film screenings uh, and the book club with Michaela now. Okay, um, super quickly in terms of the structure of it. So the way it's gonna work is that um, we're gonna have a meeting on the third Saturday of the month, every month. And each time we'll be talking about a short book or um, a number of short stories or poetry collection, ideally a book around a hundred pages or less. So everyone can try to read the book or can quickly get through it after the meeting. And the first one we picked Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector as Hopefully you all know it's a pretty short book if you got around to reading it and really experimental and we thought it was a good initial pick because it asks a lot of questions and we can just kind of talk about it as much as we want. But the next few meetings are going to be of books selected um, by different people in the LPB team through December. We have the books picked and then ideally starting next year, we're hoping that other people in the book club will have books they really want to talk about and they can lead discussions eventually. So we want this to be a really collectively oriented um, experience so that everyone can have a space to talk about books and questions and um, things they've read in an environment where people are interested in hearing their perspective and that there's no kind of right way of interpreting a book um, or an idea. So that's kind of the loose structure of what this is gonna look like and what we intend this to be. Um, Apo, do you wanna add anything else before we start talking about the book? Not really. So the idea was just, uh, in general, um, LPV is trying to shift towards sort of more community based, like at least have a discussion between ourselves. Um, sometimes it's just sort of a, a process of sending a piece, an editor getting back to you, it being published, and that's sort of the experience. So yeah, just sort of enable discussions, uh, foster community. And also I was just telling Michaela, I tend to read books and not discuss them with anyone because no one's sort of interested. So sort of give an opportunity to people to discuss books that they enjoy or want to discuss and encourage people to read as well, new things that they might not have heard of. So that's sort of the idea of the book club. Yeah, and um, just kind of piggybacking off of that, um, hopefully everyone here will be excited to also contribute pieces to LPB because we love hearing from new writers and new contributors. And hopefully this can be a space to also feel like writing doesn't have to be something intimidating or overwhelming that we're all here to support each other as well. The book, um, Agua Viva, which I have here, I read the New Directions translation, which is the most recent translation. Um, but there are others out there. And of course, if you can read Portuguese like Luigi, um, you can read it in Portuguese. So the book kind of is about a really unordered experimental meditation about what it feels like to live in the present. I think the book is structured based on the thoughts of this unknown protagonist who I interpret as a kind of loose version of the author herself, though a little bit different. So the whole book is kind of trying to find ways of expressing the kind of granularity of what it feels like to be in the present and um, sort of she calls the present the instant now at least that's sort of the translation of it and trying to kind of get into the details of that and I think it's really significant that um, it was written near the end of her life as well like I feel like the kind of presence of death coming closer I felt when reading it. Early on in the book, um, there are two quotes I just want to mention, and then we'll open up the floor to this. But on page four of The New Direction, she asks that she wants the readers to hear the book with our whole body. And I wanted to just bring that in the kind of 
music plays a really prevalent role in this book, like the experience of the reader kind of having a sensual, evocative presence. And um, as the person the book is directed toward, I thought was really interesting. And I wanted to talk about for those who read it, if they felt like it was a sensual experience. And for those who haven't read it, sort of what that means to them. What does it mean to hear the book rather than read a book, you know? And then um, also she says on page eight that she wants to write like someone learning, which I thought was really interesting as well. So does living in the present mean this idea of learning? Does it mean um, the idea of being a student, beginner, sort of those are questions I had. So I wanted to kind of start at the beginning and um, I'm really, I've been talking a lot, so I'll stop. But um, if anyone has any responses to kind of what it felt like to read this book and um, just kind of from the beginning or what it felt like, how would you write about what feelings, how it works in you? I don't know. So just to start us off, I, I haven't read Finnegan's Wake. Of course I haven't. But I've heard that people say about it that it's not a book about some experience. It's not depicting an experience. It is the thing that, that you're supposed to experience. Just that the act of reading it is supposed to be sort of uh, the, the, the plot is you reading the book. It's sort of just about how you go sentence by sentence, you know, feeling it as you go. I wouldn't say understandability uh, is very high in this either, you know, by intentionally. And with that idea of sort of with the sound of words, uh, isn't, isn't there that part where, where the speaker brings up just like dinosaurs and like names a couple different dinosaurs and says like, I say them like as sounds. And I, I, I felt, I guess, like, like I, I really, that really hit for me because like, yes, dinosaurs have just such great names. In fact, scientists in general have a lot of great names for things. Like the names of the brain, like neural axion dendrite, these are fantastic words. And I, I kind of want to use them even though I don't understand them simply because they're, they're fun to play with. And I really got that out of this narrator. Someone who's like, let's, let's use language absolutely, but be a little bit maybe suspicious of it, really understand the, its limitations. And also it's, it's, you know, inherent fun and sort of the ways you can, you can play with it, you know, for sound versus for meaning. I love that. And kind of piggybacking off of that, I felt like sometimes rather than talking to a reader, the narrator was talking to language itself. Like I felt like occasionally she was trying to direct what she was saying to the structure of language, which I was just thinking about during that comment. But Costa, I saw you raised your hand. Do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, it's sort of related to what Daniel said, but it was more related to your initial sort of raising the framing of the question. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to button in and slightly change the flow of conversation. Um, so one thing you mentioned was, and that Daniel picked up on as well, was that the interesting part, at least for me, of reading the book was the fact that she talks about this experience of reading the book and how, in many ways, the reader has the same status as the writer. I mean, she has quite a few instances where I can't remember the quotes off the top of my head, but she sort of talks about the reader in the I sense, and then she refers to herself as a you. And there's a very sort of, I feel like there's a very interesting sort of metaphysics of self behind all this that she doesn't explore that much, but which seems to tie a person with the state of mind or experiential state that they're in in any given setting. I mean, obviously, there are reasons why you put yourself in this situation and how you come about there, which might be circumstantial or whatever. But it's quite interesting because you said that she wrote towards the end of her life. And I also feel like it's a, it's a sort of ode to what comes after death. I mean, you know, the self continues when the ideas the self has are entertained by others because, you know, what you're experiencing at any given moment 
is an idea as a whole. It's not really something more than that. So, you know, I, I kind of felt while reading it that ideas are not things that people have. There are things that sort of inhabit people. I mean, the, the primacy goes to the idea as opposed to the person. And then you can sort of share experiences with other people by allowing these ideas to inhabit you. So I felt it was quite an interesting way of portraying, you know, self at least, or what the experience of the self is like. Definitely. Um, I love what you just said about ideas inhabiting people, because I feel like definitely the my experience of reading it was I just kind of had to go with the language. If I tried to understand every component of it or identify what she was trying to say, I kind of got lost. But if I just follow um, the thread of the ideas, it like took me somewhere else, you know, sort of like what you're saying. It's an extension beyond the material object or the language. Um, and she also says at one point that like um, writing is just painting with black lines, which I really loved. And this kind of connects to that and how it's she talks about different art forms, too, and how this conversation between writer and reader and ideas is this ongoing thing beyond the ending of the book. So, yeah, definitely. OK, Nacho, I see you raise your hand. Yeah, um, I feel that in general, I'm not a, a, a an expert or a studious uh, of Clarice Lispector, but I feel that she is she uses plots as an ex excuse uh, for for experimenting experimenting with language, and then language like invades the text and beats the plot totally because she says all the time in Aguaviva she's interested in in like. And uh, given the literature that the uh, not figurative quality that painting has, or that that abstract painting has, or or music has, but uh, which is auto-referentiative. But I find this interesting that she says in some parts that she she's not able to do it because literature cannot do it. She doesn't say it directly, but she says I'm going to put some things, some melodies for. Uh, for you to follow, because if not, as abstract painting, which is totally abstract, happens, uh, it can be chaos, uh, to say it like quickly. Do you remember, does someone remember uh, that part or, or those hints she's, she gives? No, I don't. Also because the structure, it's not structured in a kind of linear or narrative way, like she, Things repeat themselves, you know, in strange parts. So I really have no idea where it is in the book. I'm sorry. Does anyone have anything else to say, sort of in terms of continuing any of the strands that were brought up before? I have more questions. Michaela, earlier you said that she, I think you said she it feels like she's uncomfortable with herself, or that it's hard for her to grasp the essence of herself. I'm not sure if I heard you say something along those lines, but it was a quote I had marked out. Um, mm. anyway, um, it was part of like the questions listed yeah that sometimes yeah. the narrator is like doubting what she's saying and yeah, she has yeah, these yeah. Quotes where she's like does this make sense and then goes yeah, back that, yeah, yeah that's what I was referring to yeah so she's got this quote I actually uh, yeah anyway um, so she has this quote where she says parabolic as I am I can't sum myself up because you can't add a chair to apples I am a chair to apples and I cannot be added up and I, I mean I feel this really ties in well 
with this idea of a lack of structure, with this idea of talking about instance of time, because you have a very sort of discontinuous sense of the self. You don't feel as though, you know, she's one person who's growing throughout the narrative. I mean, there's no real progression. It's just discrete instance of time and instance of experience that are just sort of plopped together. And the only reason you can say it belongs to the same person is because somebody has grouped it into a single book and sort of given it to you. And there's, I mean, I think the lack of any sort of, you know, consistent narrative in the sense of, you know, a plot with an ABC sort of linear structure helps in, in, in this being the case. I mean, it's, it's hard for you to sort of, you know, summarize what she believes, who she is, what she thinks, because you know, it doesn't, it's not really consistent at all. It just sort of flows from all places. So, so again, I, I thought this was an interesting way to tie it up with the sort of instance of experience. You can be very consistent with what you're saying, and the reader can sort of accept this quite easily because there's no other structure anywhere. So it's, you know, you just sort of go with it. Yeah, definitely. Does anyone have any comments sort of about the structure and riffing off of what um, Costa just said? Um, just a minor point that I feel that this lack of certainty vis-a-vis her own self, I think it's also mirrored in the way she approaches her writing as well, in the sense of, I feel that she views writing in a state of like, uh, in a kind of a, of a limbo state of um, transcending like labels. So it's not really prose nor poetry or like playing with genres, playing with images. Uh, and I want to like put on this quote, which I feel that it really um, shows this sort of elasticity as she calls it in a sense. You sent it to me. Oh, sorry. Since like language and writing is such a big part of this whole narrative and it feels like writing happens to the writer rather than the reader, I also felt quite impressed by the work done by the translator because essentially I feel that they managed to re really, really well to capture the sort of like rhythm and tone that it must have had in the original uh, text since to me I didn't feel like I was lacking something. So now to the quote, I feel that that the first like three lines are very uh, representative so it goes like elastic, this forest where I survive in order to be in such a mystery but now I think things are happening. That is I'm going in, I mean into the mystery. I think that's a really good summary of how she feels about herself and and writing as well perhaps. I definitely agree. Thanks so much for sharing. That quote is just so beautiful. And I think just like perfectly captures what we've been talking about. And I love what you said about writing happening to the writer and the reader. I thought like, yeah, I actually want like, can you say more about that Vasiliki? Like, and also you mentioned the translator too. Like, do you think, do you kind of conceive of writing as happening in a trance state almost? Or is writing a kind of, thing that you surrender to and the writer is kind of plucking ideas from the air yeah or so I I feel it's a bit like both that you said in an odd way so I feel that she kind of assumes that she has a reader but at the same time it feels like she doesn't really care either so it's a weird like mix where you feel that you are part of her very esoteric and internal like world but at the same time there are moments where you feel where you really feel that she addresses to you or that she has some sort of audience. 
but the part of like the writing happening to the writer was that um, there is a struggle in in the way that she writes. There is a, a process and you feel that uh, it's not something that happens, you know, uh, in an easy or in an effortless way. It's 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 an it's a process and it's it's demanding for her to actually uh, express what she wants to express. Definitely. Nacho, I see your hand up. Thank you. Uh, I found the quote. Uh, I was worried if I was, uh, it was an illusion of mine or anything, but I found it. I have a Spanish version in, and in the 31 page. So I guess it's a little bit before the half of your, your versions. She says, um, I'm going to translate as I can quickly. Um, I'm going to confess you something. I'm a little scared. Uh, it is that I don't know where this freedom of mine will take me. It is not arbitrary. Every now and then I give you a, a, a soft story, a little story. Uh, melodic and singable in order to moderate this string quartet. A figurative uh, stretch uh, to open to open up my nutritive jungle. Um, I think that's key, yeah, uh, but I, that's really resounded in me. It made me uh, question a lot of things uh, regarding Clarice Lispector intention and what, what she thought of her limitations in, regarding this task. I don't know what everything thinks about this. Yeah, does anyone have something to say? I mean, I have stuff to say, but I want someone else to say stuff. Sorry, just because I don't know if I misheard. You say that it's not arbitrary, the sort of freedom that she has between both, or do you say it's arbitrary, natural? He says it is not arbitrary. It is not arbitrary, okay. At least in my version. Yeah, I said it in the, I included it in the chat, but it's on the bottom of page 26 in the New Directions version. Um, um, you can find it. It's the last two paragraphs of that page. Um, yeah, I love that you brought up the um, musical influences too. Um, Luigi and I yesterday were talking, we were talking about a play um, that begins with an evocation, this kind of idea in opera where, or um, in musicals where there's an overture where you kind of hear part of all that's going to come and a kind of conjuring that happens. And I feel like she really uses music as a through line to help kind of propel you forward. In some ways, like I was thinking about this book as an evocation to then live after. Like, how do you live after reading this book differently than you do when you start? I don't know if um, I was thinking about that as you were saying that, not true. Um, does anyone have any more comments in terms of music? Um, anything else? Yeah, so I don't know. I'm quite confused with the with the passage that Nacho read that because I, I found it now as well. So it does say that her sort of freedom is neither arbitrary nor libertine, um, which is surprising to me because I mean I didn't remember the exact passage, but I had the feeling that she would think it's arbitrary because it sort of jumps around to completely unconnected things. So I mean, you know, she she jumps around with all these different stories, these different experiences, and she throws in random words. Uh, you know, this, I guess, also poses the question of, you know, how much of the sort of freedom and lack of structure in the book is intentional and how much 
it's you know actually a sort of stream of consciousness with the author. I mean, it felt sort of like cheating, but I mean, in the introduction, the translator sort of talks about how this book actually took her a long time to sort of finish and how she stressed over different versions. So, I mean, obviously, it's not completely arbitrary. I mean, it's not like she just sat down one evening and actually, you know, wrote down what she was thinking. But it's, it's, it's hard, I guess, for the reader to see how she ended up structuring it this way or what she sort of thought of uh, that sort of determined the structure of the of the book, which is something I haven't really been able to find I mean, throughout. Um, so I was just interested if anybody has found some sort of overarching structure or sort of progression or no? Okay, yeah. Okay, it's not just me. <laughs> yeah. But Eponine, can you share? I was actually thinking about you when you were saying that. So what were you what do you want to say? No, I don't have insight into that, but I do think it's it feels intentional for me rather than sort of a, a stream of consciousness. I think it's quite deliberate as well because of the way it's structured. The way, the what you were talking about before, I think Nacho was talking about that as well. Um, how this is, no, that was you Costa about how this is sort of how you go through life as well. It's not sort of this linear thing. And I think so that's sort of reflected in the way she's writing. And I think it's quite intentional but linked to sort of the structure of the book itself, I wanted to share a quote. I find her writing like absolutely hilarious. And I was telling that to Michaela while we were preparing. Um, and I've got, so this is one quote and I've got another favorite one for later. Um, so I'll just share it because I was typing it up as I think that was a good sort of thing Krista started. Um, so it says, all this that I'm writing is this hot, uh, is as hot as a hot egg that you quickly toss from one hand to the other and then back to the first in order to get burned. I once painted an egg and now as I'm painting, as in painting, I just say egg and that is enough. I don't know, I kind of feel like that. She's kind of doing that with, as the reader, that's sort of how I felt. Like I was just being tossed like from one hand to the next. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I just thought that quote was really funny. And there are other like sort of really funny quotes. I don't, should I just keep going on this sort of what I find hilarious? Um, because there was another quote, which was um, about being an oyster. And like, um, I don't know if you guys remember that. And like, basically um, facts of life just come at you like a lemon on an oyster, the way I'll, I don't exactly, in my copy, it's page 24, um, and I'll put, this is one part of the quote, but it starts a bit earlier, um, because it starts, so I've put the, the second part, so the first part is, the transcendence inside me is the living and soft it, and has the thought, <laughs> and has the thought that an oyster has, could the oyster, when torn from its, its root, feel anxiety? Is it disturbed in its life without eyes? I used to drip lemon juice onto the living oyster and watched in horror and fascination as it, it, it contorted all over. Um, and then later <laughs> she says, um, I don't like when they drip lemon upon my depth and make me contort all over. Are the facts of life lemon on the oyster? Does the oyster sleep? That again is hilarious. <laughs> like the fact where, I don't know, oysters and you, I don't know, I don't know if anyone has anything they want to comment about that. But um, 
those are the those are sort of also my favorite parts in the book I think um of just sort of very random um metaphors sure it's just such a strange and evocative metaphor I mean I I should quickly say I haven't read the book yet um, but having those sort of quotes to respond to made me so excited to read it. Like there, like it seems like there's just something so unusual about her imagery. And I also think like listening to you all talk about sort of the music of the book makes me want to sit and read it aloud, actually, which I wasn't expecting. But I was looking at the the passage where she talks about about her resting her hand on the record player and her hand vibrating and feeling the vibrations of it. Um, I think there's something similar that happens when you read a text aloud, you can hear it sort of resonating within you and you know feel your vocal cords vibrating even as you're speaking. And that seems like something that you could bring to the experience of reading a text like this. I love that. Yeah, completely. Luigi, do you want to say something in response? Uh, no, I just want to say amazing. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the same room. <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. And I'm translating it to Portuguese. So it's like reverse translation. I'm just like, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's my reaction to it. Uh, actually, I think there's a moment in the book where she just repeats the word yes a number of times. <laughs> so that really connects full circle. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Um, I was gonna, sorry, I was going to just add before when Margaret was talking about how unusual it is as a metaphor, that while you're reading it, there's all these incredibly unusual images. And I was impressed that I caught myself really empathizing with her and feeling the things she was describing, which was quite peculiar when you think about it. And I think Daniel mentioned Joyce in the beginning. Um, I haven't managed to get through Brinton's Wake either. I give up after 10 pages, but... I mean, Ulysses um, was sort of similar for me. I mean, I had all these incredibly sort of harsh and peculiar um, descriptions and metaphors and use of language. And at the same time, it was incredibly easy to sort of, you know, put yourself in the characters or the narrator's shoes, um, which I felt here as well, which is, which is weird how the author seems to be, you know, making it hard for themselves on the one hand, but then it also works out. Um, you know, by just throwing things at you and then seeing how you react and sort of giving you this freedom to interpret it in your own way, being assured that it will work out somehow. Daniel, I saw you unmuted yourself at some point. Do you want to respond to that too? Or was that not intentional? Uh, it was semi-intentional. I think with the idea of, of how the, the structure of the work sort of plays with the, the content, I, I don't know if people are familiar with the writer Montaigne, but he, you know, the, I think it's the 1500s, he sort of, you could say he was the originator of the essay and he sort of wrote a lot about his opinions and just like, what he thinks about this, what he thinks about that. And he'll have like a, he'll title something like On Liars or something. And then the essay won't actually be On Liars at all. He'll just go off on a totally different tangent. And so it's tangent after tangent after tangent. And I remember feeling like a little bit personally, like, I don't know, not, not personally attacked, but sort of almost a little offended when I found out that he like actually, he edited his work. He like, you know, edited his essays a lot. And I was like, ah, oh, I thought I was getting just like an improvisational thing right that off the top of Montaigne's head, but he's really, he has like had intention. And I think what's fascinating there is that it's my guess for him and also for this book as well, is that there almost seems to be an intentional, like intentional formless form of like 
trying to almost artificially give the sense of like a mind in motion and just thinking. And it makes me wonder if like one of it's possible to write in a way that really, you know, mimics the mind and the way the mind, the mind works and thinks. And two, how, if you're able to get closer to it by sort of, you know, structuring it more, more rigorously and sort of, if you can, if you can work towards a, a, a more natural, uh, more natural form for your writing, that makes any sense. If you can unnaturally make a, a kind of natural feeling piece of prose. Yeah, I love this idea that what sounds natural may be incredibly constructed. I think that's really interesting and going to what Epa was saying about it being really hilarious. I think that, um, Kosa, you brought up that um, quote about it being like, uh, or no, it was not the one that's sort of about it being libertine, but not arbitrary. And I feel like she's constantly trying to trick us and lie to us. And I think that's part of the pleasure of the book is like, in those moments when you're surprised into realizing, wait, was she actually, did, does she mean this thing that felt really real, but now I don't know if it's real, you know, that kind of double, like, doubled experience as a reader. Um, I was definitely thinking about that as you said that. And um, I see Nacho and Costa are raising your hand, but I don't want to, um, but I want to just make sure um, we include an opportunity for people who haven't said that much to say something because we're getting a little bit closer to the end of the hour. We still have time, but just to say, um, and I want to sort of share for people because this book is so much about um, what it feels like to live in the present and how to construct that and then also how it's experienced. For those who haven't read the book, I'm actually particularly interested in your response to this. If you were to describe moments where you felt really present in your body or your life, how would you go about trying to relate that to people? I mean, how does that effort feel really hard to imagine or um, how would you go about attempting that? Um, I just wanted to ask to the room or even people who've read the book. I mean, also we can take time to think about it too. I mean, she advocates for silence so we can give ourselves like a little bit to process. I feel like that would be um, like a very respectful thing to do. So let's sort of, if we want to sit with that sort of how it feels like to live in the present and how you would go about describing that or how it felt. I was going to say, I don't know how, but definitely with poetry. Uh, and my question was, my or my comment was to questioning the the quality of novel that has this book. I believe it can be considered something else because of the language it uses. Um, I think now of, I remember the I always mention the same things. So sorry to everyone that is listening and knows it. But uh, Borges, the uh, Aleph, there's a moment in which he he has to describe the Aleph, which is uh, something uh, an object. It's it's something strange, and he said, "Now I I, I arrive to my desperate moment as a writer, because," and he says, "Language is excessive and chronologic." and cannot portray instant uh, instance or moments or visions. Um, and he, he then has a paragraph which is, which is uh, not so narrative, but uh, it is focused on uh, intensity. Uh, so I think that is one of the, the 
the objectives or as what I felt as a reader here that Clive Inspector tries to convey the intensity of a moment with the intensity of, a, of, of language and that with at least uh, poetry is easier. I mean, not prose or narration. And that is why I believe that maybe plots lose their space in Clarice Lispector's work. Thanks for that. I, I love that. Um, and thanks for bringing Borges too. I feel he definitely belongs in this conversation. So, I mean, but he belongs in a lot of conversations, not just this one. Um, does he's anyone the, else? Hmm? He's the only writer from Spanish that Clarice Lispector translated into Portuguese. Uh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Story. Yeah, that's really so cool. that's that's our our Argentinian pride. <laughs> <laughs> um, does anyone have um? Do, do they want to share sort of um sort of Nacho suggesting um through Borges the idea that like some language can't really describe instance or the fact the like indescribability is part of trying to describe it um if that makes sense or. Um, and trying to convey the intensity of a moment trying, helps you get to that moment, even if it's not actually describing the moment, that kind of thing. Does someone have anything else to add? I really resonated, um, Nacho, with what you said. I was, the thing that popped into my head was the idea of like cryptic messaging. I've been thinking a lot about that. And that's something Michaela and I speak a lot about. Um, I haven't read the book yet. Um, but I also really feel excited to, um, I don't know, I feel like kind of held within that kind of space that um, Clarice the Spectre is operating within in this book, at least in this work, um, of just like, it kind of takes the pressure off to, for me, and this is what I, I think Michaela, um, you know how I feel about like trying to capture an experience in, yeah, something like, prose or narration feels almost too overwhelming that I, I don't even want to like try sometimes. And I kind of go for that more cryptic messaging of just like a feeling or like something I see. And then it kind of snowballs from there of like, I just, it, it leads me somewhere that I didn't, I would not have been able to arrive to if I tried to recount like in this narrated way of how I see the world. Cause I don't even know how I see the world other than in these little cryptic messages, like that's the only thing that's running in my head. So why should I try and like, you know, present that in this really um, legible way right off the bat? And it can lead to that for sure. Um, so I think that for me to access that in any capacity, I first have to like start off with those messages, those little phrases, feelings, and just like that can do more than any other kind of like long-winded type of narration that I've um, tried to arrive at otherwise. Thanks so much for saying that. I mean, you know probably that I agree with you already, but um, I love that the idea of trying to describe it is not like we shouldn't use the rules of how we think we should describe something, if that makes sense. Like that just beginning by an encounter or like you're saying an object or a message or a fragment without trying to force something to fit around it, but to follow it. That's sort of how I was um, interpreting what you were saying, Sierra. Um, would you say that's right? Or is that sort of what you meant? Absolutely. And then to not just point 
prior also like that is poetry I was realizing as you were saying that that like these phrases and like I mean obviously it is whatever we want but that is also where I find my like freedom in voice within poetry as opposed to other types of writing so I relate to like poetry being a more accessible um lens for that as well definitely definitely um does anyone else have um something to add to that or something different yeah Costa. Yeah, is it okay if I jump in? Yeah, so this is actually quite similar to what Kara was saying uh, right now. But uh, when you said how you would describe uh, you know, an emotion or a feeling and how you would try to sort of capture it. Um, so I was reminded of uh, Wittgenstein, especially these blue and brown notebooks, which are not that widely known because they were never published uh, during his lifetime and are sort of. Um, notes he took in order to build upon bigger ideas. But he starts the notebooks by trying to describe uh, sort of how the mind works when we discuss different types of concepts and different types of words. And in many ways, it's the opposite of the spectrum because it's an incredibly sort of analytical introspection on how his mind jumps from word to word and from concept to concept. Then he starts by talking about the concept of green and then applying it to objects and then thinking about it more abstractly. and. Um, yeah, I mean, this sort of brought me back to the differences between, uh, for example, painting and writing. And one of the main advantages is in writing, you have complete control over where the reader's attention is based, like focused on. When you have a painting, you know, the, the viewer's eye can sort of wander to whichever part of the painting they want first. Whereas in writing, you have complete control over the order with which they interpret information. And often the order is much more important than the actual sort of uh, you know content being given because I mean when Apple read the passages about the oyster earlier you know if you invert those two passages and you read the passage of perfect and like oyster first and then the passage about oyster being in pain when planning is tripped onto them there's a very different sort of interpretation of the text so I, that, that's sort of what I what I felt like when when Carol's also talking about poetry against the order of the words is often as important as the words themselves. Sorry, that was a bit rambly, but I don't know sort of tied the things I want to tie together, but. No, I love that. I thought that was really great. And I love how you ended that too, about ordering, you know, like that somehow um, not it, uh, how you order the words is also like how you're ordering yourself within the experience as a writer, how the reading also is experienced too. So definitely, does anyone else have um, something they wanna share about how they're thinking about all these questions? No, I, um, this is somewhat unrelated. Well, um, about the question you were asking, like what's the instant now? Um, and I think it's very hard to define, but I think it was really, um, linked to the concept of time as well that she brings up. So I thought I, I was flicking through um, trying to find some quotes. Um, so on page, sort of page 30 and 31 um, of my edition, but we're not, we're not in the same edition. So I don't know what that translates into. Um, so if you try to sort of capture what's the, what's the instant now, I think there were a few quotes and these are, it's not continuous. I'm just sort of picking up fragments from different parts on those two pages. Um, one is, my eyes are shut. I am pure unconsciousness. That sort of feels like the instant now. That's one thing. 
And then later she's talking about sort of time. Um, and so it's, I hear the hollow boom of time. Then a bit later says, um, world without time. Um, and then moves on to, sorry, this is super fragmented, but um, the future is what's always existed and always will exist, even if time is abolished, even if time is abolished, question mark. Um, and I don't know, there's something about the instant now that sort of, I don't know, I, it just leaves me a bit sort of puzzled with this concept of time. Like, cause you, right? Like the instant now feels like it's always passing and you can never sort of capture it. And like, when you're like, oh, I'm gonna capture it, like now it's gone. And I think same thing with writing. Like when you want to write some emotion, by the time you get to writing it, I feel like it's gone by, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, so this is sort of my two pens on this. <laughs> Nacho probably had something more interesting to say, I don't know. No, no, in fact, I don't want to say it anymore. I like your comment. <laughs> Yeah, I, I loved um, what you just said, Epo. I mean, Nacho, are you sure you don't want to add anything? Are you good? Yes, it wasn't so related. I thought this was more um, more interesting. I wanted to say only that uh, I feel there's a passage in which I, I felt that Clive Spector was saying that she had to use the words in order to convey what she wanted to convey, but what she wanted the content of what she wanted to convey wasn't in the words themselves. Uh, so it's like distrusting in, in her capacity of speech. And she says it is in, their, in the interline. I think it is in English. In, in Spanish, uh, I, I read in, entre línea. Um, it is at the beginning. She says, um, then writing is the attitude of who uses the word as a bait. The word fishing, what the what are not words. When that no word, the interline bites the bait, something it is something is written. Once the the interline is fished, the word could be thrown away. Uh, but there's the analogy. The no word, when biting the the bait, has uh, has added to it. Uh, that I think is something interesting regarding how to exp uh, what you ask, and it's something how I feel too. I feel pretty much, uh, and I like it basically. Yeah, I think there are so many moments where she's trying to like, um, she's talking about trying to capture it and responding to how she failed to capture it, and then other moments where she's just writing. Like on um, page 30 soon after like the section Epo was going over, like there are just like sentences or paragraphs, you know, like just even in the form of it, like she's just trying to throw things out. Like someone earlier was saying, like throw things out at the wall and see if any of them stick, you know? And I think part of it is she's vacillating between wanting to really try to capture it and then other moments just not believing at all that it's possible and then like not caring and then trying. And I think, that tension is in some ways the plot of the book, I would say we brought a plot much earlier, like if there is a plot to this book, it's the gesture, you know, it's about the like modification of the gesture in attempts to do this thing all of us have been trying to, um, 
yeah, talk about and identify. Um, yeah, does anyone have sort of any final kind of thoughts about this last um, effort to kind of capture, if that's even the right word, this idea of the present? Oh yeah, Sarah. Um, I just kind of had a question and wanted to, if anyone wanted to share or just to kind of ruminate on of like, is it possible to both write and be present? Like, do those things work in tandem or are they kind of against one another inherently because like you can't actually do them both at the same time? Maybe you can get really close, but I don't know if that's something that, as I mentioned before, if I get like overwhelmed with trying to capture something, like I just won't try. Um, but I do want also to have it captured, but sometimes like I'm just more present to being present. And so this conversation has me wondering if that is just like something to accept as like, maybe I can't have that and that's like fine. <laughs> Can I jump in there? Because I, I feel like I definitely agree. It feels like you need to put the present on pause to sort of um, sort of write about the moment you're living sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I totally relate to that. I think it's sort of something you have to accept and maybe relating back to what Michaela was saying about the structure of the book, the fact that it's like super sort of, I mean, throughout, it's just short, paragraphs sometimes just words sometimes sentences um and I guess for me that's part of like how she sees the instant now like it's a very short sorry I'm not like super coherent but like it's because you can't sort of capture it in in longer prose basically um so I think that's super interesting relating back to to what Michaela was saying about the structure itself. Um, yeah, and sort of how I see it back, relating it back to time and when she's talking about time and um, also the metaphor of the chairs, like chairs being stacked up, um, sort of, I feel like this is just the book as well. Like it's just sort of things stacked up one on top of the other that don't necessarily, fragmented and don't necessarily have um, sort of a, more holistic approach to it. I was just going to jump in and say that I think it's, I mean, at least for me, I, I found it more interesting to discuss the book and to read it in a way because, you know, what, no, I mean, I don't think this is a bad thing for the book. I mean, it's a good thing for the discussion. Um, because while I was reading it, you know, it, many times the ideas she was using were just expressed really clearly um, and very sort of concisely. So I was wondering what we would discuss. And then I realized that it's, you know, interpreted completely differently by many different people. So it was sort of unexpected, but quite, I, again, I, I find it quite similar to Joyce. I mean, Dubliners are sort of simple. They're just sort of like very clear descriptions of events. And then whenever I've discussed them with a friend, we always have completely different sort of interpretations of who feels what, who wants what, who doesn't. So it's sort of a deja vu moment here, but uh, in a good sense, yeah. I'm glad you like talking about the book, Costa. Um, I just going off of what you said, Sierra, I think something else I just wanted to add on to the idea of can you write in the present about the present? Like how can that stack up against each other? Is just for me, I think the feeling of being present in writing is different than being present experiencing the world. And I think it, 
in some ways, um, writing is a way, at least for Lispector, to stay present. It's a kind of like, it's not necessarily that she's um, like, I don't know, like lying when she's not writing, but somehow the like effort of trying to like evoke it, that that, that like um, forward momentum or momentum just in general is that present. And so actually when she's writing down words and describing them, she's not being present to what she's describing, but she's being present into how she's writing about them. Does that make sense? This is a distinction. Um, that was sort of where, what I was thinking about, but um, okay. Mm, Maggie, what did you say? Do you want to say that out loud? Sure. It was just something that I noticed in this quote and thought was funny, which is the joke about one egg being enough, enough. And it was, it really is nothing of substance. I just thought it was silly and I wanted to share. <laughs> I love that. I feel like that's just the best ending to this though. Like that was really amazing. <laughs> um, no, I was gonna say thanks for coming guys. And I think even for us sort of having a, an interesting discussion is sort of a, a great, but also just getting people, like I had never read Carousel Spectre before. And I, after reading Agua Viva, I actually got two more books of us. So, I mean, that in terms of, I think that's already a success. Other uh, friends who didn't even attend today sort of read the book um, and, um, I think sort of the idea is to get people to also engage with authors they wouldn't necessarily um, read. Um, yeah. Yeah. So thanks for coming. Um, if that's it, um, see you next month then, I guess. For listening to this episode we hope you had a good time if you'd like to hear more note that we are on spotify and apple podcast if you'd like to learn more about la pitreta barca have a look at our website lapitretabarca.com l-a-p-i-c-c-i-o-l-e-t-t-a-b-a-r-c-a.com and if you'd like to support us we have a patron page the intro music is from the dreamers you can find their latest album on spotify and youtube thanks again for listening